Hello and welcome. The name of this podcast series is Taboo Truths and Tales. So why these particular T words are all in the title, you may may want to know. Fair question. It's because this podcast deals with subject matter considered to be taboo. This podcast deals with a person's perception of truths. And this podcast deals with storytelling tales of fiction told by an individual. You need to choose for yourself what you perceive as truths versus tales because very often in real life that distinction is not crystal clear. This podcast is marked explicit. What that means, you should not listen to this podcast if you happen to be under the age of 18 or if someone under age 18 is listening there with you. Explicit means nobody under age 18 should be listening to this podcast series. So here we go. Taboo Truths and Tales is hosted by Madeira D'Souza. That's me. Some of you may know me by my nickname as Woody. Whatever you want to call me, I welcome you here to this podcast, which is definitely intended for people who are 18 or older. Thank you. Now let's get started. My guest today is Jimmy Fritz. He is in British Columbia, which is the westernmost province of Canada. And Jimmy is, I think, pretty well known around uh, if you read books and you listen to music and you go to movies, you've probably heard of him. But I would say the best introduction I could come up with is that Jimmy is going to talk with us today about his half-century, are you ready for this, half-century experience in buying, selling, and consuming psychedelic drugs. Oh, wow. Hello, Jimmy. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Greetings from Vancouver. Greetings. That was kind of a a silly introduction, but um, you know, I am of a, of a certain age, so that I remember the word psychedelic when it first came out, and and yet here we are in the twenty first century. I had to look it up because I, you know, what does that word mean? And the dictionary definition is that which produces an expansion of consciousness as in hallucinations. How, how would you define, before we get started, how would you define psychedelic drugs? Well, psychedelic was a term that was first coined in the 50s by a guy called Humphrey Osmond, who did some research in Saskatchewan, Canada. And he was in uh, correspondence with Aldous Huxley in California, and they were both interested in uh, in psilocybin and mescaline. And then LSD came along, and uh, Osmond started doing uh, it, uh, research into LSD with alcoholics, and uh, they were writing backwards and forwards. And uh, it was it was uh, Osmond that first coined the term psychedelic, and uh, literally it means uh, mind manifesting. Psyche for mind and delic for to make manifest. I see. That so means to it means to make your mind manifest. Okay. Originally, that was the original term, and then it just 
now it's, the definition's been slightly widened to include uh, any, any hallucinogenic mind-expanding, consciousness-expanding drug. And, and then just to be super clear, manifest would mean creating something in the mind that is not happening there on its own, right? Is that, is that a good way? Well, I would, I would say that it doesn't actually put anything in your mind that isn't already there. What it does is amplifies what's there. So it's, I would call it a mind amplifier, a uh, psyche amplifier. So it just, it amplifies your psychology, basically. Okay. So it doesn't actually put anything that isn't already there. Whatever comes up, <clears throat> it's because it's already there. You just see it in a different way. You see it in a new light. And, um, and that can be really useful. Yes. It can be useful therapeutic, but it can also be useful as you know, inspirational or for creativity. You know, because if you want to be creative, you've got to look at things in different ways and come up with different ways of, you know, there's nothing really new under the sun, but there's different expressions of, of um, you know, previous forms or whatever. Yes. And so it can really help with that. It can really help you see the world in a new way. Now, your original, I didn't see this... Um in in print, so I'll ask you, what was your original purpose? Were you in a therapeutic situation, or were you looking at non medicinal use? No, I talk about mostly in my in my new book, which is called Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Um, it's basically because I wanted to present, I wanted to just tell my story because I have a pretty interesting story. I've done a lot of traveling and a lot of experiences. So I wanted to sort of document some of the high points there, but also to present, you know, in the framework of presenting psychedelic drug use as, as you know, to normalize it in some way, or to present a more realistic view, because a lot of people, you know, they don't even know the difference between a psychedelic and, uh, and, and, a, and cocaine or crack. And there's a huge difference. There's a difference between why people do it, and there's a difference for the effects. And so, in my, in my life, I've always used them constructively and responsibly and uh, had nothing but positive results. And that's true for almost everybody I've known. So, that's the more realistic view of psychedelics, which I wanted to present in this book. Like, here's a life that's been enriched and enhanced by psychedelic drug use with no, with no downside. So, I think, um, I mean, I think any drug can ultimately be used responsibly. But some of them take a lot more, uh, you know, consciousness than others. Yes. So uh, it was just to present a more realistic view. My first book also was called Brave Culture and Insider's Overview by Jimmy Fritz, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, that was also a look at the rave scene and uh, and ecstasy use, MDMA. And that too was was written out of the, um, you know, intention of, of just letting people know that this wasn't just a, the rave scene wasn't just this out-of-control drug scene. It was actually a very, very positive social, cultural, musical movement that changed people's lives for the better. And that's what I saw. That's what I saw when I first started going to raves and doing MDMA. It just changed my life in so many positive ways. And I saw that it was routinely changing, you know, hundreds of people's lives and nobody knew about it. Now, what, so what decade, was, if I may, if I may butt in here, what decade? That would be, uh, that would be in the 90s. Okay. Okay. I actually wrote that book 20 years ago. Okay, but, and you are, let me ask you, are you of a sufficient age that you lived in through the 1960s when yeah. Timothy, okay, 
I, I just wanted to... So s- I'm, yeah, I'm 67 now. Okay. And I started using uh, psychedelics in, you know, 1968 or nine. Okay, because I am just a couple of years older than you, but I remember my very, very first introduction to all of this was Timothy Leary. Um, yes. And he was, uh, actually, he was held in in prison in my hometown, San Luis Obispo, California. There is a, right. a low, uh, low priority, that's not the right name, but, you know, these aren't hardened criminals. Uh, the men's, yeah. co- California men's colony, which almost sounds right. like a, like an island resort somewhere, but... So I was familiar with Leary and the, the whole LSD uh, advocacy of him. So that's why I... Well, I one time, at one time, he ended up in a prison cell next to Charlie Manson in a maximum security prison. <laughs> that was his worst prison experience. So he, yeah. was, he was in and out a few times. But yeah, he was, uh, he was persecuted for a long time. Yeah, by the Nixon people during the 70s especially. Um, yeah. He, uh, all right, Nixon, so... Uh, the, yeah, Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America, which Larry took as a compliment. Uh, but he did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you wrote about um, the rave culture in the 1990s, but 30 years previous to that, there was in all around the world, um, but especially uh, the West Coast, uh, California, the Summer of Love, 1967 and all of the San Francisco area, uh, many artists in that time frame were, uh, Grace Slick comes to mind, Jefferson Airplane and others come to mind today as authentic representations of that psychedelic era, as we call it. So when you look at the 90s, was it much different, the rave culture, much different from the culture in the 60s and 70s? It was certainly related. Um, it was, uh, 1987 was uh, was called also the Summer of Love uh, because it was when the rave scene burst out in England and uh, there were underground rave parties everywhere. And that's when it really kicked off and it was that was the big first big rave year and that was also coined Summer of Love which is you know, no coincidence because it was a similar kind of experience where everybody came together, everybody came together under one banner, under one ethos. It was a slightly different ethos because it was uh, fueled by different drugs. Uh, the 60s was fueled by LSD and psychedelics and marijuana, and these are things that you know open up your mind and they're kind of intellectually based, whereas the MDMA revolution was about emotional, emotional um, expression, empathy and compassion. So that was a slightly different, but, it, but you know, it was marked by new music, new fashion, um, in new culture, and uh, this this phenomenon of raves, rather than I mean, they were sort of having raves in the sixties too. You know, have the acid acid uh, Kool Aid uh, tests and uh, you know acid parties, all night acid parties, right, with acid rock and, and psychedelic rock, and then the rave scene was a turbocharged version of that that came around you know twenty years later, thirty years later, and um, was uh, you know so there are there are a lot of parallels to draw. That uh, acronym, the acronym that you used, MD something. I am a complete MDMA. Yeah, that's the that's the chemical letter name for uh, ecstasy or uh, Molly or Roll or X or E. 
Okay. It's all the same thing. And it is, all, uh, you said emotionally, can you restate that? Because I, I was trying to figure out the definition. Yeah, the psychedelics are happening on a very intellectual level. And, um, and that can be, you know, very useful and stimulating and, and positive. But the um, MDMA is unique in the fact that it's not really a true psychedelics. It's more, it's, it was classified as an empathiogen. Empathiogen is something that engenders a feeling of empathy. So people on MDMA have this feeling of empathy towards other people, but they also have empathy towards themselves. So all their pre-programming, all the things that separate them from people and separate them from being authentic with themselves, they all kind of melt away. And for some people, it's the first real taste of authentic freedom that they've ever had. And you could see people transformed by that, by that experience. You could see them on the dance floor, and you could just see them changing before your eyes. It was quite amazing. I was so impressed. I started doing parties myself, and I was, uh, produced uh, about over 30 rapes over the course of about three years, about one a month. And um, there was a very tight grip, tight-knit group of people. I had an invite only, and then, you know, members could bring guests. So it was kind of a private underground rave club. They called it SPEC which is the Society for the Perpetuation of Empathiogenic Celebrations. Ah, yes. And everybody would come together and we'd listen to, uh, you know, progressive house and trance music all night. And, uh, and everybody would do MDMA. And it was the most amazing connective experience. It's group mind meditation connective experience where everybody just was absolutely on the same page with no filters and no games and no masks. And for the first time in their lives, people people felt uh, you know free and authentic. Yeah, and uh, it was a, it was a really really positive movement. The um, in the nineteen sixties, Roger Corman, a very famous uh, American director of uh, I guess you would say horror films, but he directed kind of a genre, genre, yeah, yeah. first kind of independent films. Really. Well, certainly independent, yeah, and then but of horror nature. Primarily, that was his legacy. But in '67, a film called *The Trip* he directed, yeah. written by Jack Nicholson, and yeah. starring Peter Fonda. That was my very first introduction. I was 16 or so at the time, and you know, I realize now, all these centuries later, that you can't have an experience sitting in a movie theater or even at home with a big screen. It's not the same to watch a psychedelic experience on a screen versus being in the, in, in the company of several other people who are, as you were describing, at a rave. How would you, how would you, how would you take issue, if you would take issue with that description I gave? Yeah, it's always been very difficult to portray the psychedelic experience in movies. And there have been movies that have done a pretty good job of it. But most of them get it wrong. You know, most of them just go over the top. And, uh, you know, I mean, in the, in the 70s, there's, you know, the, the extreme zooming in and out and, uh, right. and uh, blurry images and stuff. But that, that's not really, that's right. not really what Alice did. It's like they were trying to portray it as an alternative reality, but... And that was largely unsuccessful with that movie. But uh, there has been there has been some, some films which have come pretty close to uh, to um, you know capturing the spirit of a psychedelic experience. But you're right. I mean, you know, what you see in a movie is never the same as 
what happens in real life. Yeah. Now Kubrick. For any experience. Stanley Kubrick tried to capture that in uh, the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. But it was, again, like you were saying, mostly he didn't do the in and out camera movements. It was uh, pretty much animation or I don't know if they didn't have digital at that time, but a lot of color, rapid editing and so forth to kind of make you feel like a strobe effect, we would call it today. And it kind of made you feel, well, something. A lot of people freaked out because they had never seen anything like that, that kind of editing. And Roger Corman did that too, similarly, in the trip, but it wasn't as high class a, <laughs> an experience compared to Kubrick, I think. Uh, but yeah, all, all Kubrick, it was, it, for Kubrick, it was a description of he was trying to represent going through to a different dimension in time and space, which is similar to a psychedelic experience, but it wasn't the sort of, it wasn't supposed to be, you know, the, the effects of LSD, or, for instance. Right. So, all right, back to the use of the uh, of the drugs. You were saying, in so many words, that in order for the person to experience this, they need to be um, ingesting something. It's not just here's a movie. Uh, it's it's not just here's a disc, here's a movie, here's something streaming. They have to ingest something. Is that is that a fair way of expressing it? can't you can't have a you can't have a real psychedelic experience from a movie you can't have a real you, you have a vicarious experience of, of everything in a movie right no, the whole of the whole of the film is just is filled with these vicarious experiences which you can relate to but you're not actually you're not actually having them you're having a re, you know you're seeing a representation of them so i think it's quite different than the real thing yes that makes sense now you have used simple the word psychedelic maybe is well known today but it's not the most uh simple term but you used two words to describe two kinds of drugs smart drugs and dumb drugs i don't think there's any i don't think anyone would question hey what is what what does that mean so could you talk about those two and how they differ well, in the, in the opening of uh, Confessions of an Esper Drug Dealer, I, um, I start off with this, uh, you know, this treatise on smart drugs and dumb drugs. So smart drugs are drugs that uh, enhance it, they open, increase your perception and awareness and therefore enhance and improve the quality of your life. And dumb drugs are the ones that decrease your perception and awareness and therefore, you know, cause problems in your life. So you have, uh, you know, smart people do smart drugs and dumb people do dumb drugs. But if smart people do dumb drugs, they can become, you know, dumb people doing dumb drugs. And if dumb people do smart drugs, they can eventually become smart people doing smart drugs. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the essence of it. <laughs> but, yeah, there are, there are drugs which are much more constructive than other drugs. I mean, I do believe that all drugs can be used constructively. But um, some are much harder to do and some of course are you know the addictive ones and you have to uh, you have to know how to use these things i mean i've never had a problem with a drug and i've tried most of them so if you do them responsibly and respectfully and you know what you're doing they, there's it's not a problem it's like anything else you know if you do something responsibly then you, you have a good experience and if you do it irresponsibly it's the difference between use and abuse and it's also the difference between getting into it and getting out of it. Okay, I see, yes. 
with smart drugs you're getting into it you're you're magnifying your life you're amplifying what's going on and with dumb drugs you're actually you know decreasing and suppressing what's happening because you don't necessarily like yourself or your or your life and so you're using these drugs to mask psychological problems yeah now when we that's never a good thing and and we are aware in our culture of uh, musicians who or performers, whatever you call them, are, who become very successful, very wealthy, and then they escape to the freedom, I guess you could say, of cocaine, which is a, is a dumb drug, by your terminology. Um, is that an accurate? Why you know? Why do you think? I mean, I think I, know, <laughs> I think I know the answer, but I'll ask you: Why do you think people that, who get wealthy and and successfully successful financially turn to those dumb drugs uh, as they do why why do you think that happens well because despite the fact that everybody thinks they have this wonderful privileged you know uh, incredibly incredible lifestyles they actually don't because the whole celebrity fame you know uh, circus puts them in a position where they're completely isolated it's not only a very high pressure you know if you're on tour then you're doing most of these guys, you know, right the way through from, from Johnny Cash all the way through to, you know, all, all of them. They all resorted to amphetamines of some kind. So they were all doing speed, or they were all doing coke, you know, they were doing methamphetamine. They were doing whatever they needed to do because it's a really, really high-energy life. If you're touring from place to place and there's a lot of travel and there's a lot of super high-energy performances you've got to put out every night, it's a very, very hard lifestyle. And what it does... Is uh, you you need to you need something to get you through that. So they start doing a lot of amphetamines and stimulants, which gets them through for a while. But then they takes its toll, and then of course they're so wired they can't sleep. So then they get into benzos and opiates to relax at the end of the day. So now they're doing uppers in the day and downers at night. And that you know, eventually stops their heart. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that. You know, well, we've no, seen that many 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 times. Many it's times. always exactly the same story. Yeah. Well, and the Michael Jackson case is a very tragic example of that. Exactly the same thing, right? Yeah. He's doing amphetamines all day, and then he's doing stronger and stronger opiates at night. So, and uh, and eventually, you're telling your body to go, 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 and then stop, 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 and then go, and your heart just stops eventually. And that's what happened to him, and that's what happens to all of them. It's yeah. The same story. And also coupled with that, you've got this lifestyle where you're totally isolated. And you have no, and the more famous you become, the less authentic relationships you have. So you become completely isolated from the world, from any, any, any meaningful, you know, relationships. And that, you know, makes people crazy too. And, or suicidal, which also happens a lot. Yes, yes. Well, that leads me to ask you about the, um, at the start I said, um, you were someone who had 50 years experience buying, selling, consuming. Talk about the selling part. I I don't I can understand the buying and the consuming, you know, as a just as a person who wants to explore and then having had positive impact explores more and and that leads to more exploration. But what about the selling part? How does that go? Well, if you want to buy if you want to buy psychedelics or any drug or you want to uh, consume them, then the most important thing is a safe supply. You need a very, very solid supply. You need a tested supply. You need, you know, a, a supply that you can really trust. 
So the way to do that is to buy it yourself and then you can disseminate it to your friends. That's why I mean I first started selling selling psychedelics to my friends because I wanted them to have a really good source. And I didn't want them to be buying it off the street from some guy on the street corner. So, you know, I took some time and trouble to find very, very safe sources and clean clean stuff and uh, very high quality psychedelics and then I sold them to my friends and then my friends told my friends. <laughs> I see. Okay. So that was that was the impetus was to just create this uh, this safe supply basically. Yes. Okay. Now when you look at um here in the US what's going on right now that started um at the beginning of this decade, right, the D, we call it the decriminalization of cannabis. Uh, and there are, I forget the exact number right today, but uh, somewhere upwards of 70 something, 75% of the 50 states have changed their laws to decriminalize the use of cannabis. How does that fit? into what you have experienced, that new reality in the U.S. How does that fit with what you experienced? Experience in, in Canada, you mean? Or? Well, I don't mean so much in the cannabis sense, but, you know, when, when the availability of cannabis increased in the United States, and I don't know what happens in Canada about cannabis, but in the U.S., what happened was people became particularly older people, people over 50, became more comfortable trying cannabis as medicine. At the very heart of what you've been talking about is uh, a medicinal use of of drugs. So that's what I'm asking. How do you see, Is it, do you see what's, what's happening in the U.S. with decriminalization as, as yeah, a... Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's an inevitable... Uh... It's an inevitable pattern that you see all around the world now, and uh, I mean, I've you know the interest is is in therapeutic use. The, you know that's what's legitimizing psychedelics right now is the fact that there's some you know legitimate uh, medical use. But uh, I've never used psychedelics therapeutically or medicinally. I've only used them uh, you know inspirationally and creatively and recreationally. So um, that's not you know. That's not really what 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 I've what I've used them for, and that that's. But it always starts like the legalization and the decriminalization always begins like it did with marijuana. It begins with medical marijuana, and then it begins with more and more states. There's 27 states that have medical marijuana laws now, and uh, soon there'll be recreational laws. They follow, and that's what happened in Canada. We had medical marijuana laws, and then that went on for a while, and now we have full legalization of recreational marijuana in Canada, national national level. Wow. And that will happen in the States too. It's an inevitable, you know, progression. But it's the medical or therapeutic use that legitimizes them and, and, and supply and, and, and creates the safe supply. And then, you know, later on, later on we'll have uh, recreational, you know, psilocybin and LSD, DMT and all these other drugs. It will happen eventually. It will take a while. It took like it took 60 years to legalize marijuana. I mean, I remember campaigning for the legalization of marijuana 50, 50 years ago. And it only just happened in Canada, like uh, three years ago. 
Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing. Those of us who have lived in both worlds, the pre-legalization era and then today, it, it is a yeah. mind blower. It's a mind blower. I tell you, Jimmy, I, I met Cheech Marin from the famous Cheech and Chong. He was here in Las Vegas. Uh, he, he has a company that sells uh, cannabis legally. Um, But in the old days, not that long ago, he was, you know, he was the essence of counterculture. And I asked him about that. How do you, how do you, how do you get your mind around that? Uh, You know, that once, what what once was comedy and counterculture now is actual business. He is a businessman in Northern California somewhere. Um, uh, He was opening up shop in uh, Nevada, so that's how I met him. But his answer was that it is mind-blowing to him, too, and that, you know, he reminded me that his partner, Tommy Chong, had served time in prison. Uh, Yeah, many years. Yeah, and then he, Tommy Chong, also has a cannabis business today. So, you know, it's sort of like that old Woody Allen movie. If you wait long enough, things that were bad for you become good for you. I mean, that's a satire. Um, but I believe that's... Yeah, it's, yes, it's quite surprising for people that, like you say, they've been around since the 60s, and we've been talking about legalizing marijuana and campaigning for it for that long. And now that it's legal, even in Canada today, you know, I'll be at the park with a friend and we'll smoke a joint. And they'll be kind of looking over their shoulder and kind of cupping it in their hand to hide it. And I go, no, it's legal. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they still can't, you know, still can't quite believe it. That's that's funny. Now we um, Las Vegas is uh, about a hundred and about a hundred years old, and and it is a place, as everyone knows, where you go for escaping your reality and you have a good time you play you know there's a lot of uh, recreational things here now we have recreational cannabis and there's talk about las vegas becoming the amsterdam of north america someday which alludes to uh, the netherlands where the city of amsterdam which is hundreds of years old not just a hundred years old amsterdam has experience with cannabis on the street, so to speak, they have coffee shops and and whatnot. What do you think about that? Is a having a place like Vegas become the nexus for that kind of a recreational dr- drug use? Yeah, I think there'll be I think there'll be more and more places, you know, that uh, welcome it. That they'll have you know that'll, that'll bring people there and it'll, and it'll bring tourism. And we've had pot tourism in Canada for a long time. You know, people bring in tours and they go around the grow rooms and they go to the factories and they go to the pop stores and they smoke dope and they drive around in a limousine. <laughs> you know, we've had, we've had that for a while. And uh, Vancouver used to also be called uh, Van Amsterdam <laughs> because there were so many pop. I mean, at one point there was like 115 pop stores in Vancouver. And that was even before it was legal. <laughs> These were all just tolerated, you know, before, before the, the laws changed. Wow, wow. So there isn't a, like an effort to make, what, what city would you pick? I mean, Vancouver is West Coast and Toronto is, uh, what is that? Eastern time zone. If there were, yeah. t- if there were to be a Canadian nexus, you know, a tourist destination, where, where would it be? Or are you saying it already, they already is? Well, it, it already is in Vancouver and Victoria. 
Ah, okay. But, okay, that makes sense, yeah. Wow. Because it's always been, I mean, BC, the whole economy in BC has been fueled by the marijuana industry for, you know, 25 or 30 years. And, uh, you know, even, even before there was any legalization at all. And then, of course, that only increased with the medical marijuana laws and now the recreational marijuana yeah. laws. But it's always been a key part. It's always been as, it's, it's bigger than logging and fishing. Well, that's what I was going to say. I remember British Columbia for logging and fishing, yeah. And, uh, right. So now the transition has been made to cannabis? Yeah, I mean, it, the transition was made a long time ago. I mean, the BC economy has been fueled by marijuana for the last 30 years. Interesting. Wow. So maybe yeah. I maybe I should get a passport after all. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the good old bad old days, you could just drive north uh, into Canada. Didn't need a passport. Didn't need anything. Uh, coming back into the U.S. was a, sometimes a problem. But uh, and now, of course, after uh, two thousand one, everything has changed and. Uh, Passports are needed everywhere. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not like it was. I mean, I did a lot of traveling in the, in the 70s. Uh, you know, traveling was really easy. You could just you just walk through it, flash the thing, and, and there was no problems at all. Now it's like, uh, you know, maximum security prison. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I wanted to ask you, uh, this is probably a bit technical and a bit esoteric, but as someone, now you create music and you create films both of which require um hardware let's call it i mean you could be a great acapella singer and i have not heard that but um i presume the music that you create and the films that you create involve some sort of hardware use is that an accurate way of yeah okay uh, yeah sure yeah yeah so if you are using any kind of um, manifesting or expanding drugs, how does that affect your creative process in the use of hardware? Like if you had complicated notes p to play on a piano or guitar or whatever, would it be easier, harder, no impact at all if you were using the um, manifesting drugs? It's really different for different people. Some people can, some people can play on. I mean, Jimi Hendrix used to play on LSD, and uh, it seemed to work very well for him. <laughs> but uh, I've never been able to play uh, high on anything, really. Maybe, uh, maybe an amphetamine, but uh, not, uh, not part. I mean, I can't, I can't smoke pot and play guitar because I can't tune the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're using any kind of, you know. Computer equipment or whatever, or sequencing anything, or editing film, you can't do that. You can't do that on the LSD. You've got to be pretty much for me, anyways. I mean, people can do it, and people do do it. People get super stoned and play music all night, but I can't do that. I have to be completely straight to play music or make movies or you know plan those types of things. Where the where the psychedelics come in is the inspiration and and uh, you know stimulating creativity. I mean, you can get a lot of really good ideas uh, when you're under the influence of psychedelics, and then you can transfer that to your to your work. And I think you know I think I've probably done that you know more often than not. 
Yes. That's a very helpful answer for me because I experimented. I do digital, um, I create digital illustrations. Some say digital art, whatever, 3D digital art. So I tried with being on cannabis with a high THC content and I could not, I could not do anything. So I needed to... I needed to check with someone else. So you have made sense for me for the first time, something that didn't make sense up until now. Yeah, there's a certain visual kind of uh, visual fluidity or a distortion with with psychedelics. And it doesn't work with computer screens. I mean, if I'm on LSD, I can't even use my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Because it just doesn't, doesn't, I look at it and it just doesn't look like anything. It just looks like a bunch of buzzing pixels, <laughs> and it doesn't really—it doesn't really register in the same way. You know, now if I look at a sunset, that's a whole different ball game. But the, the computer screens uh, on LSD for me don't work at all. Well, when you when you talk about inspiration, I know what the word means, but um, like, can you give an example? And even if you make this up to synthesize a lot of different experiences you've had. How do you get an inspiration, quote-unquote, from this drug experience that you then segment or se- uh, separate from the creation process later on? Can you, can you talk through how that, how that might work? So, so what happens with psychedelics is you're, what you're doing is you're creating, you're, you're making your brain work in a different way. So you're creating new neuro pathways for the same experiences. That's why normally when you have an experience, you map this neuro neuro net, this neuro neuro pathways in your brain all light up in the same way every time. So when you have an experience, it's the same experience every time. Now with psychedelics, it reroutes all those signals. You get a completely different neuro net, or a completely different neuro map of that experience. So it looks completely new and surprising and different, and it changes the way you think about it, and um, it makes it much more much more fluid. And then you can you know use that that perspective when you you know when, like I say for me I have to be straight, but afterwards you can incorporate that, and your your mind becomes just more fluid. You can see things in different ways, and that's sort of what creativity is about. It's about seeing something in a different way. <clears throat> so. The more you can do that, the more creative you can become, and the more authentic and original your art will become. How do how do you remember? Like in my example of creating digital, I if I was high, I couldn't use the computer, like you were saying, but I would make notes to myself, handwritten notes about what I was feeling about a particular thing that I got, an idea I got from high THC in cannabis. And then later, after I was straight, I would go back to the computer, look at my handwritten notes, and then act accordingly. Is that a process similar to what you have experienced? Yeah, I mean, it could well be that, you know, if that works for you, then then that's what works, right? I mean, creativity is a very personal thing, too, and it works different ways. There's no one way to, to write a song, for instance. Melody. Some people start with an idea. Some people start with a sound. It's uh, it's a very personal experience. But I think what the psychedelics do mostly is just loosen up your mind 
it makes it makes it uh, makes new connections and, and gives you a new perspective. And that's what you need if you want to create something original. Otherwise, you're just going to be sort of reproducing something that you've heard. You need to bend it out of shape a little bit and then bring something original to it. And I think psychedelics can really help you do that. So it's just a matter. In my case, I found handwritten notes work. In your case, what what do you do to preserve the memory, if you will, the emotional memory? I'm not. I'm not sure you need to. I think it just it changes your brain. You know, it changes the it changes the wiring in your brain. So and it and it's uh, sort of a permanent change. I mean, once you've had a really powerful LSD experience, I don't think you can ever go back to where you were previous to that experience. It's a reset and it makes your it makes your brain work in, 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 in different ways. And then because it's doing that you can bring that to anything. You can bring that you know, you can bring that into your life and integrate it in uh, in many different ways. And it's a very you know, it's a very personal experience. I think it works differently for different people. But basically what you're doing is you're just shaking it up. You're just uh, you're just re- rewiring your brain in different ways, and then it stays rewired. So um, you could bring that to whatever you're doing later. So I may not have needed to write handwritten notes. Possibly not, but if that works for you, and if that reminds you of, of you know, if that reminds you of the experience, and then that that reminder you can then integrate into your you know your straight life, then then it's then it's working, right? Yeah. It's whatever works, and that's the basic thing about art and creativity is you have to make it work. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You have to be able to recognize whether it works or not. Oh, for sure, for sure. Somebody thinks, you know, they had a great, great idea on LSD, and then they look at it the next day, and it's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, I've, yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. Hey, Jimmy, would you give us the title once again of the book? Yeah, it's Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz. It's J-I-M-I Fritz. And uh, Rave Culture and Insider's Overview by Jimmy Fritz. And I've got a website, too. It's uh, jimmyfritz.ca. And I've got all my films there. I've got um, 24 music videos that I've made over the last few years. I've got uh, books and articles and uh, films and all kinds. There's five albums there you can download and um, jimmyfritz.ca that's the best place to get to all my stuff okay I want to tell you I was I didn't know what to expect today um, but this has been a very enlightening certainly eye-opening experience for me and I thank I thank you for that I think this uh, I hope the listeners too will uh, have a similar experience to what I yeah, have. I hope so too yeah well, again, Jimmy, thank you so much, and uh, I wish you well. Okay, you too. Nice talking to you. Find out more about this topic. Go online to the website, tabootruthsandtales.com. That's tabootruthsandtales.com. Taboo Truths and Tales is hosted by Madeira D'Souza. That's me. Thank you. <laughs>